Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optic Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back with another podcast, and we have a special guest. But before I get to that, I want to just tell everybody about what this podcast is about. So uh, a couple months back, we did a podcast called What Does It Mean to Be a Man? And that one like when you know shot up the the rankings for us and it was it's in our top five most listened to podcasts and people really liked it it's about two and a half hours long and for some reason people thought that they would spend their time listening to that so i i always wanted to after that do do one about women what does it be what does it mean to be a woman since these questions seem prevalent at this time and so we thought it might be better if we actually had a woman on instead of Nick and I talking about what it means to be a woman. Um, so uh, we, we have somebody on. So this is uh, Annalise. Annalise, do you want to tell everybody who you are, what you do, and, and that kind of thing? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I started a page on Instagram about two years ago called Feminine Not Feminist. And that was my basic, that's basically where I do the majority of my writing and content. Um, but that grew quickly over the past couple of years. And essentially I talk about, um, being a wife, um, biblical femininity, biblical womanhood, um, some theology in there being a mother. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the short of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Yeah. So we appreciate you coming on and I think, I think we'll just kind of get right into it. I know I want to ask about, a little bit before we get into the actual question of what it means to be a woman, I want to ask a little bit about because you talked about your Instagram, you have like 140,000 followers. And so I want to, and that's on Instagram. So on Twitter, you have some more too there. And so I guess, how did that grow? And what, what, what made you so popular on like, what, what drew the, the people to you um, in talking about femininity and, and what it means to be a woman? Yeah, I, I can't say I'm totally sure because it was kind of a whirlwind. It happened really, really fast. Um, I think, I think that okay. So I started it in June of 2020, and it quickly began to resonate, and people began to sharing it, began sharing my content. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with like high quality writing, and there's a lot of people talking out there, but they're not necessarily writers. And so I brought my experiences in marriage and my knowledge from the word of God. And I coupled that with, with good writing. Um, and I think that combination is what, and this is just my assessment. Um, I think that combination, um, is what enabled it to be like receptive to the heart, but also receptive to the mind of women. Um, and so that is my, my working theory, but at the same time, it really did happen very fast. And I think also too, that the honesty with which I'll just share my struggles, um, as cliche as that sounds, but it enabled people to go, Oh, I re I resonate with that. That's me. Um, and that's something everyone likes to see. Yeah. So, yeah, no, yeah, that makes sense. I think I think one thing. So my wife introduced me to your page, and I think one thing that I I saw in it, and that my wife appreciates as well, is that it doesn't seem like you're trying to to get like to have you know put everything into one or two sentences. I think one thing that you do is you just like you write long 
I mean, you just write like long tweets or whatever, and then you kind of you put them together in a way that fits in Instagram and on Twitter. But I think that that's good because I think what happens a lot of times with with social media right now is that we try to make very complex things simplistic by just yes. narrowing them down into a into a like watering them down basically and putting it into a sentence or two to make ourselves sound like witty and and cool and all that. So I think that you do a really good job with that, and that's probably another reason why people were drawn to you. Um, so yeah, okay. So let's just jump into this. I know that I'm going to ask you this huge general broad question right now, but um, I'll let you kind of take it away and kind of define your terms to begin with. But I guess the question is, what is biblical femininity? And you can kind of go from there, and and we will jump into it. Yeah. So the term biblical femininity never actually shows up in the Bible. And I think that's, that's worth pointing out. I use it. I think it's a good term, um, but it doesn't actually show up in the Bible. But when I use that term, what I am referring to is what does the Bible say a woman ought to be? If you're a woman, you are a woman, regardless of how you behave, you can be bad at being a woman, but you're still a woman. Um, so when I use that term, biblical femininity, the question is how, as a woman, do I express that womanness in a way that glorifies God in a way that points to the one who made me? How do I embody what I am and how I'm created to be, um, in a way that reflects my creator? Mm -hmm. So I can start off with that basic premise of biblical femininity is how, how should a woman, how, how ought a woman be in light of God's revealed word? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it's worthwhile saying at the outset here, we talked about this beforehand, but like we are taking a, a view of human beings that is biblical as opposed to transhumanist, right? So a woman is an adult human female. And we are also assuming in this conversation that gender and sex are highly related. They might not be a hundred percent exactly the same, um, and we're not saying everybody who's ever said gender has a relationship to the social background, blah, 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 is false. But the relationship of, of the foundational nature of gender and the normative nature of gender connected to the femaleness of the human person is fundamental in the Christian worldview and in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so, and that womanhood, which is the second to divine finding characteristics of human beings in creation. One is they're both made, you have human beings made in God's image, male and female, he created them. And so for Christian faith, that differentiation of the genders into complementary genders that are different from each other, but that both bear the image of God is foundational for us. And so all of Annalise's writings, her posts and all this stuff starts at with that starting point. Mm-hmm. But yes. I don't see anywhere where she denies that women are different from each other. Mm-hmm. No, There's a lot of, a lot of variation, but I think just to make clear in the world we live in that what we mean by a woman and what that presumption the Bible creates of the relationship between gender and sex as being foundationally connected, I think is important just to make clear. Right. And I'm talking about, like you said, I'm not putting everyone in the same box. The box of womanhood is a very big box. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are perennial Mm -hmm. principles that regardless of who you, where in the world you are, your age, whatever, as a woman, you embody. um, But the expression of those principles is going to have a variety of, of forms. So Yeah. And I think that's an important thing. That is one that we talked about beforehand, because I think there are women who don't feel like they are part of the the normal cultural ways of being a woman. But the Bible does still have a box that's big enough to include those women inside of what biblical femininity and biblical womanhood can be. Well said. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And just if you aren't watching this, like if you were to see Annalise's 
room behind her, it's not full of pink flowers and like light yellow plumes of feathers dangling from the ceiling. Like I, that's, that's not what she's trying to right. communicate. There's like and I think, right. yeah, a Thomas books. Jefferson quote, a map yeah. of the wall, <laughs> some hats. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think we're also starting from a starting point that like it's this basic fact of human life that most of the things humans are and express overlap almost entirely. We can all do laundry. We can all make food. We can all speak in intelligible sentences. And so it's not like men and women exist in like non-connected Venn diagram circles. Right. right. But there still are profound differences between us normatively. And I think that's what Annalise is trying to help people understand in ways that modern feminism tends to undermine or marginalize. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things we talked about beforehand and one of the things that Nick talks about in his, he has a book called substance in general is figuring out what are the basic, like what are the basic core biblical foundational principles that we need to, as Christians be obedient to, without really totally understanding them so that we can like in the beginning of our Christian walk so that we can then grow into them and then later try to understand them more. And I think that like being a man and being a woman would be one of the first basic, basic foundational principles that we need to figure out. And so Annalise, you talk on your Instagram and Twitter about just some of these basic things. Like I think, I think you've talked about like well, I don't want to quote you wrong. So you talked about some of these basic, basic foundational things that relate to being a woman. Do you want to like, do you want to tell us about what those are? Because that seems to be like a, a controversial thing right now with yeah. in our society. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll make this controversial from the get go. But um, okay. <laughs> when you look at the creation of woman, which I think is a really good place to start if you're talking about a woman, mm -hmm. um, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then he creates Eve out of Adam's rib. And, and later um, in now, one of you might be able to tell me, but it's first or second Corinthians. And I can't remember, but Paul says first, for man, first Corinthians. So, you know, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man, neither was man made for woman, but woman for man. Hmm. Um, so, so the first time you see a woman, she is created because Adam needs a help me. Um, mm -hmm. that is suitable to him. The animals can't help him. The plants can't help him. He needs one of his own kind mm -hmm. and from his own flesh that will be a suitable helpmate to him. Mm -hmm. And so the, the obvious example of this is in marriage that I am created to be a helper to my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, and that he, you know, it's not that he, can't get through life by himself necessarily. Um, but together we are so much more than he would be on his own. So that's one word, the fund, like the first word I would say is helper. Um, because that's, that's the first time you see women. Um, you, you also see that women are designed to bear life and to bring forth life and to nurture that life in the role of motherhood. And, um, this, this role is highly valued in scripture. Um, and that uh, I, I go to Titus too, as well of what are the older women to teach the younger women there, teach them to be, to be, um, pure, submissive workers at home, to love their children and to love their husbands. Um, and starting off with that rubric, um, there's a lot there. 
So that's what, that's basically what my page talks about is, all right, this is what we're called to do. So how can we love our husbands? How can we love our children? How can we be good keepers at home? How can we be good helpmates? Um, And then everything that applies to a Christian in the word of God, if it says a Christian ought to be this thing, man or woman, then I'm called to be that as a woman. Um, How can I cultivate humility? How can I cultivate patience? How can I cultivate any virtue that is given to Christians in the Bible? That's my Mm -hmm. calling as a woman. So again, a lot of adjectives and a lot of directions we could go in when we talk about that. Well, let's, let's break down the helper. And I think that, I think if, I think there's going to be two major camps here, I think there's going to be women and there's going to be people who hear, okay, I need to be a helper and they're going to want to help. I guess, what, what do you mean by helper? Because there's, there could be so many ways to take that. I think about like my, my mom is more of a, she's, she's, she's more of a masculine woman. She's got like, she's very powerful, very in your face, very vocal, very disagreeable. And, and I think this is something that she's talked about struggling with uh, for her whole life is learning how to like, how to be, to help her husband and not, and not necessarily be the one making all the, all the decisions all the time. Um, So I guess, yeah. What do you mean by being a helper? Cause that could be a broad thing. Proverbs says that a wise woman builds her house but by your own folly tears it down. Um, So the question is, what does it look like to be a helper? Are you an asset or a liability? Like what are are you detracting um, or are you contributing? And I don't mean this in a, um, what's the word? Like a utilitarian pragmatic sort of way. Like how much are you producing? That's not what I'm referring to. But if you are, I think of the, um, more in Proverbs where it talks about like, um, yeah, the wise woman building her house, but the foolish woman tearing it down. That's where I would go first. Am I building my house or am I slowly brick by brick destroying it by what I'm doing? So if I'm helping, um, then that can take on a variety of forms right Mm -hmm. now. It looks like me being a stay at home mom and taking care of the meals and taking care of the house and making calls and appointments and doing things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I am contributing. I'm not tearing my house down. I'm building up. That's also in how you treat those who are in your house. Mm -hmm. Are you, you know, are you constantly angry with your kids? Are you constantly nagging your husband? Then you are slowly brick by brick tearing it down. But a helper, someone who's helping is encouraging. They're building up. They are adding joy and life to the home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that verse in Proverbs kind of sums it up. Like if yeah. you want to know if you're a helper, like ask, am I building my house up or am I tearing it down? And yeah. I, I think also, um, so can I, okay, so just a couple things, then you can respond at least. Yeah. One, the word is there for helper and he, in um, Genesis 2, it, sometimes feminists will say, you know, that word is only used in relationships of equal and sometimes is even used of God. And that actually is true. Mm-hmm. The word still means helper. Um, but what, so one of the ways I like to translate it functionally is the helper without which you can't succeed. Right. So like the person's your helper, even when it's God, God is helping you do what you're responsible to do. Right. But it's still, it, but it's not undignified, obviously, because God can be that person or, or a general could be that person. And I think it's first or second Kings, mm-hmm. but it's like, you need that person. So there's no, Adam was not going to fill the earth mm-hmm. or subdue it without a woman. Yeah. There's no chance. He could not succeed. So she's a helper. And I, we can get into the signals of 
the dynamics of the male-female relationship signaled in Genesis 2. Mm. But one of them is um, the woman like taking her cue from this kind of label that one part of his, her role is to be a helper. I think that's, I think that is really good. I think it's also important to point out that the most, um, the most repeated verse in the book of Proverbs is our verses about quarrelsome wives. Hmm. So four times there's, there, there's four verses that says it's better to live somewhere other than your house than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And then yep. once it says it's better to live on the desert than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And then once it says it's better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome, ill-tempered wife. Hmm. So like, now, maybe it's because Solomon had 700 wives, but he really connected this with this idea that a quarrelsome woman is just an unhelpful thing. Yeah. And so in 1 Timothy 2 and in Ephesians, where there is a suggestion that women should be, quote, quiet or have a quietness of spirit, mm-hmm. some people think that means that women should shut up and not give their opinions. Mm-hmm. But what it probably means is the opposite of quarrelsome, ill-tempered is probably what it means, that there's a way of expressing femininity that's very powerful. Mm-hmm. That's very direct. That that holds everything the woman has to bring to the table, mm-hmm. but doesn't do it in a way that's tearing down her house or alienating her husband, but being a helper. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have do you, do you have any response or no? Um, yeah. Well, I think about First Peter three too of like mm-hmm. um, if if you know if your husband not, does not obey the word, you may win him without a word by your pure mm-hmm. and respectful conduct. Mm-hmm. That would be another example of the opposite of grumbling, troublesome, mm-hmm. nagging wife, pure and respectful conduct. And conduct is an all encompassing word. It's not just what you say, but it's how you live and it's how you carry yourself and it's how you treat others. Your conduct Mm -hmm. can be an asset to your home and a testimony to your husband. And in the same way, it can also be the opposite of what you want it to be if you're a nagging, troublesome wife. So yeah, yeah, I was thinking about those Proverbs verses when I was talking about that because Mm -hmm. they're very applicable. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, okay. So I think, I think what some people might be thinking at this point is, yeah, you want to be a helper and you want to be building up your family and building up your household and making sure that everything's going in the right direction and, and helping your husband as he makes those, as he tries to build things as well and kind of sets a direction. But what do you do when your husband is setting a direction? I, I kind of look at this in the same way that I think Paul talks about our, our submission to the government. At what point is submission to your husband become sinful in that if, if he's bringing you in the wrong direction? Because I think a lot of people and a lot of women in our generation want to make they want to make it out so that their husband that because they don't want to submit. They yes. want they they want to make their husband out to be somebody who's doing something that's sinful, so that they can have an excuse to not to, not to submit, rather than submitting to the good things. Does that make any sense? I know I'm like I'm, my sense. words are all crazy. So what what in what ways is can submission actually become sinful? And then in what ways can women kind of combat that natural the, the natural like ah, I don't want to do this, and so I'm going to try to find a way to make this seem sinful. And before she dies into that, I, I think so far we're only assuming the relationship of submission and authority relative to the word helper alone. Hmm. So Annalise, would you want to yeah. comment any more on like if and why you believe that the concept of submission is part of biblical femininity in marriage and sure. to define kind of define its parameters before we talk about its yeah. practical outworking. Well, it's better and the first thing I would say is that submission doesn't just show up in Ephesians, which is where everyone goes. Wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. 
Um, it also shows up in Colossians. It shows up in Titus 2. It shows up in 1 Peter 3. Um, so this is not this single, you know, egalitarians will sometimes say to me, oh, you missed the part about submit to one another. And I'm like, I'm not just talking about Ephesians. I'm talking about this rich biblical testimony to how wives and husbands are to interact with one another. Um, also talking about a woman learning quietly in all submissiveness. So it's one, it's not just Ephesians. Um, and two, um, to, to go back to your question, Andy, of like submission, I think sometimes when I've talked to people about submission, they, want to give all the exceptions to the point where the word submission has no meaning anymore. Yeah. Submission requires that you submit yourselves to something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it can be easy. Sometimes it'd be hard, but if you destroy the entire concept of ever having to yield, Mm -hmm. then you have destroyed the entire concept of submission Um, to the point where it's like submission means, Submission, I will submit when I agree with my husband. That's basically how some people define right. it. Yeah. And you don't see that with, uh, again, in First Peter 3, I bring this up a lot because it talks about Sarah and um, says, you know, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your pure and respectful conduct. Then it goes on to say, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair. Okay, blah, 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 not blah, blah, blah. But and then it <laughs> says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Okay. So I bring that up because the one example that we are pointed to from submission in the old Testament is Sarah and Abraham and Abraham wasn't the best guy ever. Like he wasn't Mr. Bible man, super godly all the time. So if, if, if Peter was going to choose any example, like kind of funny that he would choose that one. Um, so I think there are things in scripture that are explicitly sinful. And then there are things that are wisdom issues. Hmm. So for instance, and this, I'm going to explain how this relates to submission, but for instance, Proverbs talks about debt Debt is not a good idea. Debt is unwise to get yourself into. But is it a sin to to be in debt? No. So let's say that there's an issue in a marriage where, um, you know, the husband wants to make a decision that would involve getting into debt and the wife thinks it's unwise. Well, obviously he should listen to her because I'm assuming he married her. He values her opinion, of course. But that's not a sin issue if he ultimately decides, okay, we're going to make this decision. It may be a wisdom issue, but it's not a sin issue. And I think that's where people get confused because they're like, well, I disagree with this. This, I think it's an unwise decision. And they should vocalize that to their husbands because he values mm-hmm. his wife's you know, um, opinion. But that's different than a sin issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I think if, if we understand that, I think that can clear up a lot of confusion around this topic. No, you should never submit to sin, but we do need to define sin correctly. It's not anything that I think might be kind of unwise or, um, you know, anything I just don't have a great feeling about. Again, you should vocalize that, Mm -hmm. but that's different than a sin issue. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, Mm -hmm. I think there's, there's convictional issues and then there's like clear defined sin 
in the Bible. And, and I agree. Yeah. I think that, I think that oftentimes people want to, and I, I fall into this up, but like make my conviction or my wisdom issue, try to like somehow twist the Bible's words into making it like, this is a, this, it's a sin if you do this. And ultimately you can't do that. You can't do that. But like, because it's such a big deal, if you're single and listening to this, you should marry someone who already agrees with you on the majority of conviction issues. Like this is not something to take lightly just because I'm saying it's not a sin issue doesn't mean that it can't be a big source of contention in marriage and very, very critical to, to hash out. So choose wisely. (laughs) Like, yeah. And you're also looking for a guy who can admit he's wrong, who the truth has coercive power on him. Mm -hmm. So for a believer, that'd be somebody who like when the Bible tells him he's wrong, he believes the Bible instead of his own opinion. Mm-hmm. It also means like if you see him in a situation where he's clearly he says something he's clearly wrong, and that comes up that he goes, "Oh, I was wrong." Mm-hmm. Like somebody who like is willing to change their mind because as a woman, what the truth has the coercive power of God. So if you're talking with your husband and you say, "Yeah, but this isn't this true," and he recognizes the truth of it, a virtuous man isn't going to say, "Well, you have to submit to me." A virtuous man submits to the truth long right. before he asks anybody to submit to him. It's it's part of the reason why he should be submitted to in the first place. And so I think you're so, yeah, when you think about like who you're looking for, a Christian woman who says, I believe in this biblical concept of submission. Well, that ought to affect pretty deeply who it is you're looking to unite oh, yourself. Yeah, with. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was just going to move in. I mean, I was going to move into, which I think this all relates, but you probably come across a lot of different women on your page and like, and that you talk to, what do you see as a main hurdle that women come across in their journey to living out biblical femininity? I, I, I assume that it has something to do with submission and all of these different things that we've already been talking about. But what, what do you think is the main, the main hurdle? Well, I mean, not shocking that I would say this, but feminism is kind of a big hurdle. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but everything everything that feminism entails, and I I describe feminism as the philosophical manifestation of the curse in Genesis three. That um, that there's it, it's not merely like a social movement, but feminism kind of expresses or embodies many of the sinful tendencies that maybe befall women specifically. Um, and so like in Genesis three, it says your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Mm -hmm. And there is a, there is a spirit of in feminism that is, wants to overturn the creation ordinance of male headship. And it's not like, Oh, some people say, Oh, we want to be equal, but it's really, it's like, feminism we want women to be on top so um so i see feminism as being a major hurdle because even if you didn't grow up with like explicit feminist philosophy in your home like i didn't um but there is there's it's everywhere already as sort of the underlying assumption behind behind a lot of people's philosophy so like it's it's feminism presents male female relationships as this unequal power dynamic and if you are a young woman wanting to grow up get married eventually and that is your paradigm for relationships then you're already starting off on uh mm-hmm. the wrong foot because you're mm-hmm. seeing it from this like 
again, they present it as unequal power dynamics. And so there's this suspicion, this inherent suspicion. And, um, and then you read something like, oh, the Bible calls me to submit. And that goes against everything right. you've been told. And it goes against the flesh's innate uh, it's fleshliness. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say the, the curse is working against right. women, um, but feminism as kind of the philosophical manifestation of that. Yeah. What, would you, what, what do you think? Nick, let's go. You, you can go. Yeah. So when you said that, I, I also thought maybe that feminism is also the philosophical outworking positively of the curse, because I think there are offenses men make in how they live out headship. And so you could say feminism is both railing against the male abuse of their authority and negatively trying to remedy that by overturning the creation order. Like an overreaction. Yeah. I, yeah. I would say yes. And it's it, it's also how you define feminism because like mm. feminist theory is it's Marxist theory. It's oppressor yeah. oppressed class, which I fundamentally deny as a Christian. Right. And then I would also say like the Bible calls men to love their wives. Like the Bible, the word of God already had these solutions for how men mm. and women are to interact in a loving manner. Well, yeah, I think what you were saying was I was saying, so do you think of it feminism as both negatively and positively laying out the curse? But what you were I think what you were responding was you're saying, well, yes, feminism is a plea for justice, but that plea for justice and all the dynamics to create it already existed before feminism. And yeah. so the resources that feminism purports to give us already existed. So yeah. you, maybe you could say that it was a protesters chant that we actually do them. But it wasn't the resources. It's kind of like you know Nietzsche's critique of religion or Foucault's critique of religion. Well, all those critiques of religion that were legitimate were in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and like all the biblical prophets. And so they didn't really come up with the critique of bad religion, mm -hmm. right? right? Like the Bible has all those critiques in it. The question is, were we going to listen to them? But the right solution is to listen to them and have the kind of faith God calls us to rather than reject all faith. And yes. I think what you're saying is, is especially the more, most modernist and postmodernist critical forms of feminism have imbibed the class distinctions yeah. or the distinctions people built into um, later or post-Marxist theory, which assumes the wife is an oppressed class. Right. And that that is something that is completely foreign to the biblical idea. Because in Genesis 2, the complementarity of the female and the male together is, comes out in the first song of the Bible. Right. Where David rejoices over the wife and they have no shame. And it's, we're given this idyllic picture of the two belonging to each other well. And then that's, res that resonates in Song of Songs, where you get this highly intimate, um, deeply moving, passionate relation of the male to the female, which is very masculine and feminine. And it's interrelating in the dynamics of that romantic love so that it's celebrating archetypally the male female romantic marriage cooperative complementary relationship and how beautiful it is mm -hmm. yeah. so the bible knows nothing of the wife as an oppressed class even though from the very beginning the her the wife submits to her husband and doesn't give way to fear yeah and i think that's that's really hard i think that is really hard for people to to embrace because of the worldview that they're swimming in yeah. right and i think too like there's there's I've interacted with a lot of women, not a lot, but some women from um, countries like, like India. And 
you're dealing with a country that has no Christian framework here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, maybe when like England was uh, colonizing, I don't know. But like you're dealing with a country that is not coming from a Christian perspective at all. And Mm -hmm. feminism really resonates with a lot of women there because like they genuinely have like a rape culture like that they 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 have that in india so that is a separate thing i would say like there's the critical theory and then there's like women recognizing like oh it's actually really hard to be a woman here this movement claims to offer something for me and create justice like of course that they're going to resonate with that right and so i think there's going to be different flavors and i've tried to to remember that when i'm talking to individuals is um it's not all like you know shave my head blue hair american third wave feminism right there are there are problems that they might accurately identify um but again what is the solution because the word of god already already has something to say about that yeah i i think i i put in there under submission i think a lot of women even christians wonder why submission so like one of the things that Mm -hmm. i i think you can go to the new testament in particular and also in all of scripture really and see Mm -hmm. hey there's this idea of female authority subordination within marriage and that the wife as helper has this relationship of submission that's non-absolute but is pervasive mm-hmm. but then the christian woman goes okay but why why would god do that and there isn't there aren't a lot of texts in scripture that go okay here's why ladies and so i think that's the thing that christian women struggle with because they we're as americans we're used to having an explanation for things we don't like and if you can't give me an explanation then you failed the burden of proof and I don't have to listen to this. And I think both the answer of like, well, no, I mean, God can speak and show himself in his written word and that is enough. But I don't know, Annalise, if you have anything that you say to women yeah, well, about that. Um, I would ask when, when a woman asks, okay, why submission? The, the assumption behind that question is still that submission indicates a kind of unfairness or inequality or something like that. Like there's an assumption behind the question, why? So I would get at that assumption of, and the way I've talked about it before, and this goes into other stuff. So I, I don't want to go too deep into this, but like Christ submitted to the father during his earthly ministry. Christ is not uh, less of less value than the father. Um, But he submitted to the father and to the father's will. And if you say that that makes him less than or whatever, well, that's heresy. So, um, and, and same with the word helper of like the Holy Spirit is described as our helper. So why do you, why is the initial reaction to ascribe some negative connotation to those words? That's what I would ask that person. Why is that inherently negative? And usually it's like, well, it can be used to abuse or, you know, and I'm like, well, then like, then address the abuse. Like the abuse isn't flowing from people living out biblical marriage dynamics. The abuse is men and women sin against each other. Yeah. I think, I think it's also just because people don't want to be told what to do. Like, I mean, when I think about for, for myself, even the fact that I have to listen to the Bible and like be okay with some of these things. Like, like when I was first coming back to the church, it was like, don't, don't do like, don't go hook up with 
bunch of girls or like, you know what I mean? And I was like, why, why would I not do that? That doesn't even make any sense. And I think it's to the first point that we made at the beginning of this podcast, that there's certain things that you're not going to understand immediately as a Christian. And some of these principles that you're not going to understand why, like I'm, I wasn't going to understand at 18 years old, why I shouldn't go just have sex with whoever I want because there are so many other things going on that was affecting the way that I was, I was thinking about that. I just had to submit to that biblical truth and do it and Correct. not sit there and theorize about it and try to theorize my way out of doing it. And so I think that in oftentimes when it comes to submission and these, these issues that face women, they would rather spend their time theorizing about why, why this doesn't make sense than actually just submitting, like, saying, I'm going to just do this out of obedience to God. And it's not just women, it's men and it's it's everybody who has to grapple with the biblical truths and the biblical commands. And I think that that's, that can be annoying to people, but, but it's, it's part of the, I I, I would completely agree. And I would, I would say going back to the curse of your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Like the way I've heard it described and maybe disagree with this, but like, patriarchy is not the result of the fall. The result of the fall is that women don't like patriarchy. (laughs) And now I'm using that word patriarchy and people freak out and stuff, but just meaning patriarchy means father rule, right? So the husband being the household. Patros arche, patros for father, arche for rule. Not everything is for the sake of the man, which is the traditional feminist way of defining it. Father rule. So if you want to put it that way, like father rule is not the result of the fall. The result of the fall is that women won't like it. Mm-hmm. I believe that. So, mm-hmm. and I've, and I've talked to a lot of egalitarians. They have their spin on that verse. Their take on that is, Oh, this is, this is a curse that like egalitarianism is like overturning or yeah. something like that. They want to get mm-hmm. back to the garden. They believe that, bef- but Nick has made the point of this. Podcast. So yeah. Eve was still a helper in the garden. Right. 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 Yeah. So m- my wife, when she was working on this in systematic theology, she said one night, she said, I re- I finally realized this really all goes back to how you interpret Genesis 2. Mm-hmm. Because if you believe that this relationship between man and woman existed in Genesis 2, then Genesis 3 doesn't change it. Yeah. And then the warp and foot wolf of the male-female relationship throughout the rest of scripture and human history doesn't change. I, I think where that, cha- that, that verse in chapter 3, there is question is how to interpret and he will rule over you. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that word sometimes translated mastered or whatever it, that that word pair obviously is in the next chapter, Genesis four, where Cain is struggling with whether or not to kill Abel. And God says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you. Right. It desires to have you is how it's usually translated. But you must overmaster it. You must right rule over it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so rule over there could mean either positively like you have to learn how to rule over this thing that's trying to be subversive to you. And that's going to be hard, but you've got to do it. And that would be a virtue or that word ambiguously could mean like, like rule over in a negative use of authority. Mm-hmm. That is. So some people would say Genesis three says that the relationship between the man and woman will go bad for both of them, that the man will start to misuse the authority he's been given. The woman will begin to like claw to take it away from him and subvert it. And that will create this positive feedback loop of negative relationships between men and women, where men will abuse their role as men and women will abuse their role as women. And it will get worse and worse rather than both seeking to embrace it with virtue so that the dynamic between them gets better and better. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any way to prove grammatically which of those it is. As a man, 
I find the second interpretation real plausible given the way I've seen myself use my um, authority sometimes. But it, but however you tr- however you interpret that verse, it doesn't change our systematic theology at all because our systematic theology is still going to say that men are going to be idiots a good bit of the time and misuse their authority because they are subject to the fall and the curse. Right. So even if that ch- that particular verse doesn't teach that, the whole rest of the Bible does. Right. And it's still, no matter how you interpret that verse, it doesn't take away the ordering of the male female relationship in Genesis 2. It doesn't undermine it at all in any way. And so we're, we're still left with the same thing, however, of those two ways we interpret the verse. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I don't know the Hebrew side of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, you, you talked about, you had just talked about the, like, I don't know if we even asked this, but the why, like people who are wondering why I need to submit, yeah. what, what would you say? I mean, cause we kind of just went into how, yeah, maybe, reasons, maybe we, yeah what, what would you say is I really like listening to folks like Annalise talk about this is just to see how people have read the Bible and how it kind of comes together for them, because there are some things in the Bible that are just kind of in the warp and woof of the whole thing. It's just like a lot of what it's sort of teaching is like implicit everywhere. Yeah. And there isn't a lot of text. If you take all the texts that explicitly teach stuff and you put them all together, you still got less than two pages probably. And so it's not like there's all this stuff about like describing womanhood everywhere, but it's like there's all these things like assumed, explained, lived out, embodied all over in different places. And in most places, you know whether or not this, in that story, that woman is embodying something positive or negative. Yeah. Right? So when Abigail confronts David, you know that's a positive expression of womanhood, even though she's not in any way submitting to her husband. But she's saving his life and therefore building up her house. Right? So like there's those, there's those kinds of dynamics. So like the only verse I know of in the entire Bible that seems to want to explain why there is this relationship of submission isn't the one in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And because that passage has so much bad feeling and anger related to it, because it talks about submission and in relationship to the local church and its expression in public worship, Paul says, I don't, I don't permit, permit women to teach or to have authority over man. Mm -hmm. And then he connects that to the creation order and Mm -hmm. the way the human race fell woman first. And, but he doesn't explicitly say why the woman was deceived. He just says that she was deceived first. He doesn't say she was deceived first because. So so he, even in that verse, there isn't an explicit definition. My speculation on that as a man and as a theologian is that because women are the nurturing impart, imparters of humanity, right? Because human, the humanness or the, or the humanity in a socialized sense is given to a human being in the first three years of their life. Like they, like so much socialized, so many billions of inputs of socialization happen to us to make us like behave like humans, mm-hmm. right? That in the vast majority of those inputs are done by women. And that's why when you say women are quote more nurturing than men, that's not just a way to like be pissy towards women or make them feel good when we're saying that they're no good. It's like literally the thing that creates humanity, right? They literally bring humanity out of new people. Because of that, they tend to be more focused on other people's needs. They tend to be more focused on nurturing. They tend to be more giving of themselves to others. They tend to be more fluid and, um, and like, um, flexible. Like, like even the studies on like female sexuality, like there's lots of lesbians can flip heterosexual if they feel like it. And very, very few men who are gay can like, they're just, they're fluid in their sexuality. They're just, they're just very fluid. And like, 
leadership in the church is dogmatic. Like it has to be like, no, you're just saying no all the time. No, 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 no. And so it was (laughs) right. And it's not very nurturing. You have to be disagreeable, right? And you have to be hard. And I think that part of the idea is that when women fulfill their roles in in relationships and live out their femininity in that kind of way by embracing that nurturing side, especially if they're receiving children, they're not supposed to be super hard. And so so there's a way to take advantage of that which women are supposed to give themselves to, right? Just like you can try to get a man to get angry and do something rash, you can take advantage of a woman's um, kindness and right. nurturing nature and invite her into doing something she wouldn't do, but she does to please and nurture you, right? Or to like make something better in the context in which she's trying to make things flourish. And so the only sense I can make of that to try to come up with like a, a, like a, a gender-based description is that on the whole – because women are called to more nurturing roles and develop them. So they habituate their bodies and senses as Aquinas would put it to these roles. They're giving themselves to getting them to switch gears into being the hard one is not helpful. And I would say that, that goes along with what, what, um, what the, what the gentler sex is in first Peter. When first Peter says, men tr- don't treat your wives harshly, Right. But but treat them kindly in relationship to them. Being, I forget the, the word right now. Honor, showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel. The weaker vessel. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it, the, the idea here is like not the lesser vessel, but the like the the way I would translate that is something like the more brittle vessel. Like and so like she's not supposed to get hit with a baseball bat. That's not what she's made for. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like your wine glass just isn't meant to be smashed. It's meant to hold something extremely valuable in an aesthetic, beautiful way so that you can enjoy it. Right. In some ways, like women are supposed to embody the human aesthetic, the beauty, the thing that draws goodness out of the heart, the thing that is redemptive in that way. And therefore men have to treat women in a very specific way in marriage. And when it comes to the role of the elder and the teacher and the one who has authority in the church, those are yes, no, those are highly disagreeable roles. The teacher has to say, no, that's heresy. That's wrong. This is right. This is the gospel as we've received it. The person in authority has to say, no, we're not doing that. We are going to do this. And that role then is would be unsuited, generally speaking, to how women are habituating themselves in godliness relative to the spe- specificities of their roles. Now, if somebody said, but Nick, aren't there going to be some women who like have all the, the personal characteristics that could be a really good elder? I mean, my answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. But it seems like in scripture, God normalizes that to gender because that dynamic is more important to him because there's still a million ways that woman who would be a great elder can use her gifts. I mean, she's still going to use her gifts all over the place as a godly woman. Yeah. So one question that I had earlier was that, not that I hadn't said earlier, but that I was thinking about earlier was that I think that Genesis three and the fall plays itself out in generally in two in two ways when talking about the wife desiring uh her husband and that he'll rule over her i think it plays out in two ways i think it plays out in like a micro way and that it's playing out in marriage relationships and that would be more micro because that's that's just two people playing and that's playing itself out in that way but i also think it plays itself out in a macro way across across an entire culture or uh society and i think that in the United States that we see it playing in, playing out in that way and that the women desire to rule over the men generally. But I think like there's a statistics and we talked about these in earlier ones, but that like 
a very high percentage of women who are in executive CEO, like managerial roles are depressed and some of them suicidal. And so it doesn't seem to work itself out naturally for women to be in those, in those high leadership authoritative positions. So my, my question was, there are women who are, who have grown up in our generation where that has been the norm, where they're told that they need to take, you know, like they need to be the more masculine woman and take on the world that way and build companies, be the CEO and be, be this boss. And how can women who are single, who have been told this their whole life, prepare for marriage in that that's not going to be their role within the marriage? You know what I mean? So right. how can single women prepare for this when they don't really, they're not, they're not actually like going to submit to a man that's not their husband. You know, they can't just go around like serial dating men and just like, I'll practice by dating a bunch of guys. Cause it's, they're not called to do that, but mm-hmm. how can they um, practice this in a really good way in the culture uh, without, you know, I don't know, without doing anything weird, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Cause I get questions sometimes someone will say, I come from a, a household of very like sort of kind of aggressive, strong women. Um, yeah. and they said, I never had it modeled for me. Like yeah. that's the problem. So the solution is find someone that is modeling that mm-hmm. and learn from them. That's what I would say to like, my husband did this like before we were married. Cause he comes from a troubled home. And so he, he just found all these different couples and families that he was like, you're doing something right. Yeah. (laughs) What you're doing is working. I'm going to go hang out at your house and I'm going to watch and I'm going to learn and I'm going to ask questions Mm -hmm. about what Mm -hmm. it means to be a man, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a father. And I would say the same to women. And that's, again, you see that in scripture with Titus two of the older women teaching the younger women, um, Mm -hmm. seek out these individuals, Mm -hmm. seek out the woman in your church who Mm -hmm. just just always has grace and truth in the way she interacts with people and in the way she interacts with her husband Mm -hmm. and ask her to, for her to be a part of your life because you, you, you didn't get, you got that way, the way that you are from having no models of that. So you kind of need to do the opposite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I think presumed at Annalise's, um, Annalise's uh, response here is go to church. Like that, that is assumed. To, yes. Yeah. Go to and church more than 40 Sundays a year and do stuff and participate. And then those older women will be interested in you. But if you show up three times a quarter and you're like, Hey, be my mentor. It's going to be like, uh, you're not even going to show up when I invite you over to my house. So why would I bother? You're too right. inconsistent to be teachable. Yeah. So many of the things that I say are like caveated with, you should be in a good church and you should be involved in that church and you should be (laughs) because I cannot, I mean, advice cannot fix. doesn't matter how good the advice is. It cannot fix the gaping hole of if a Christian is not a part of a local body, there is nothing that can replace that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I, I also think, okay, this may be a little controversial, but like if you're in a place and you're going to a good church that is good and, in, in every way, but they're actually their theology of manhood, womanhood is egalitarian. They believe they're, they don't believe in these distinctions in marriage. Um, there are still couples in your church that are still doing this because it's natural. Yeah. Like it's yeah. the way God created us. So philosophically, they'll be like, yeah, nobody submits to blah, blah, blah. But like the wife still like commonly defers to her husband lovingly and respectfully. And he wants to serve her and they have this really nice, and you're kind of like, 
that is indistinguishable from complementarianism or like this belief in this, these relationships. And it's like, yeah, because sometimes our godliness and our pursuit of God and then our natures are better than our theology. Yeah. Well, and if you're attending a church where there's genuine believers, they're being conformed Mm -hmm. to the image of Christ. Like that's happening. So Mm -hmm. that's going to reflect, um, even though in, in theory they'll think, Oh, well, yeah, my theology is egalitarian. So I, I completely agree. I've said the same thing. You can't run from your nature. Mm-hmm. Like you, mm-hmm. you can't escape that. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I think, I think another, just to add to that is that yes, local church is fantastic and everybody should be going to local church, but more specifically, I think every young person should be discipled by several older people. And, and it's too exactly to what you're saying, but not just in like the marriage things. I think like as a part of their, their routine, their weekly routine and their day, like their life is that they should have men and women who they can, well, men should have men and women should have women who they can like look up to. And I think that this moves into our next question in that I have written here, how is femininity tied to fertility? And this can seem to be like a weird question and make some people feel uncomfortable. Um, but we've talked a lot about Titus too. And I think that that's probably where this will go. So I will ask that. And Annalise, do you want to take that one on first and then maybe we can get Nick's perspective afterwards? Sure. Um, so when, when you ask that question and I think about it from a, like a broad, broad societal scale of how is fertility viewed by our society? Is it viewed as a blessing or as a curse? And at large right now, right. it's viewed as a curse. It's viewed as yeah. something that you have to hide all signs of. You have to take a pill to get rid of it. Um, yeah. you know, and then if you do happen to get pregnant abortion, like right. it is by and large viewed as a problem to fix and not a gift to cultivate and support. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Yeah. Which is rooted in this idea that having a child slows you down and keeps you from the things that makes you quote equal with men. Correct. Right. So like this is going to interrupt your career. It's going to interrupt your education. It's going to hold you back. It's the reason why men and women make different amounts of money and all of that. And so in that it's because money advancement, education, prestige, are the measures of the meaningful life for all people. And therefore women have to have maximal access to it. It's recognized that nurturing a human that needs a billion inputs to form their humanity in the first three years of your life is going to get you behind. And so it's an unfairness in the race. Right. And so the birth control pill is the solution to that unfairness. Mm -hmm. And that puts men and women on equal footing in terms of succeeding. Yeah. Um, And for Gen Z, the incredibly... I would say promiscuous or common use of morning after pills, like these like after sex abortifacient, much stronger pill like things has become the norm. And I don't know much about the negative physical effects of those, but I just, I mean, I just hear about the college age women just taking that stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's actually, it's insane to me because if you talk to someone who (laughs) can't get pregnant, Mm-hmm. Like that, the ability to get pregnant is the only thing they want. And yet it is treated as this mm-hmm. disease. It's medicated. Fertility mm-hmm. is medicated as opposed to mm-hmm. supported. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at other cultures, like they had fertility diets before a young couple got married, you know, they'd be eating like oysters and liver and all this stuff because they recognize this, this young couple's about to get married. They want, they, you know, have healthy offspring. Like, mm-hmm. so it's just, we are so backwards in how we view the ability to, to bear life. And so in, in terms of 
femininity. Yeah. That is the that is a thing that a woman can do that a man cannot. And it's the very mm. thing that's the only thing. It's, right? it's, it's only the primary thing. thing, yeah. Yeah. But it's the very thing that is under attack and is viewed as a, a curse and disease. So it's like mm. talk about hating women, like the very thing that distinguishes a woman in in the most beautiful way right. is the very thing that we need to get rid of. You and would think that like modern, but it's, don't you think it's true though? Like, I think it's, we have to be honest with our feminist peers. Don't you think it's true though, that if a woman chooses to marry and have children, that does make her other, her unequal in her other pursuits. Like it is going yeah. to slow you down. Yeah. It's going to do all those things. You are trading things like advancement and prestige and so on for it. Like it, in that sense, it is a death mm-hmm. to something. But maybe something that was an idol, and in some ways, Christianity is all about dying lots of deaths for the good. Yeah, and and I guess I don't, I don't know. I I love hanging out with my son. I don't want to be sitting in a cubicle. Like I've worked. It's mm-hmm. I don't like it. It's overrated, right? <laughs> I say I used to say that to Alexi. I'd come home. She's like, Nick, these three kids that you made with me, like I want to strangle them. And you're like basically just hanging out at work. I was like, baby, you weren't at work. It it is overrated. Like, and there's this, I think there's just this deal where we just, we imagine that the grass is greener in the other lawn, you know? Yeah. 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 So. Well, okay. So, so as part of this conversation, I think of the first Timothy somewhere in first Timothy verse that talks about how women will be saved through childbirth. And, and there's just something that I was a couple of months ago. I remember talking to my dad about this was like, you know, is this like a, could, could this be like if you don't have children, you're not saved. Obviously that's not the case, but what does that, what does that actually mean? Because there seems like Paul seemed to specifically and purposefully tie fertility to in some ways, like salvation in certain ways. So what, what does that actually mean? And then for people who can't have kids, how can that still be played out? Okay. Here's my take. I'm not sure if it's, yeah, you can give your input because I don't know. But yeah. my take is you go back to the garden and, you know, there's this curse of I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing and pain. Will you bring forth children? Um, the entire. The entire category of childbearing is incredibly sanctifying for women, and that can include like the fact that if a woman can't get pregnant. And the Lord is using that to sanctify her. Like it's still under the category of, of childbearing. Now, generally the general model is that through raising children and parenting, et cetera, et cetera. um, You know, we become more like Christ and this is the main tool that women are sanctified by. But even like the, the cases where women can't have kids or something like that, like it still points to just how sanctifying like it's still an outworking of of wanting to have children. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but the entire category is something that God uses by and large in most women's life yeah. to conform them more to the image of Christ, which is ultimately our salvation is to be conformed to his image. Now, Would if you, a woman it, doesn't get married sorry. and like isn't even try, wanting to have kids or trying to have kids, like um, she's still going to fulfill her role as a woman in, in terms of like, there, there's always something to nurture, like, and that a woman can't escape from that. I mean, she can try, but like, 
there's always something, someone to care for. If you're in the body of Christ, like there's always someone to care for and to nurture and to help. So that's would kind one, of my take on the yeah. verse. Would one way to interpret that, I mean, tell me if this is kind of what you're saying or if I'm thinking about this wrong, it, to interpret that in that like women will be saved through the desire uh, for women will be saved with the desire to mother or to like for motherhood. Would that be a good way of saying it? If they have like, if they're being sanctified in a way that God is pushing them towards a desire to, for motherhood, not just motherhood for their own children, but motherhood and like nurturing women in the church and things like that. Is that what you're saying? Or am I thinking about this? I guess I would say the way I understand it is childbearing and, and all that it entails and encompasses is overwhelmingly used by God to sanctify a woman and thereby, you know, are, we're sanctified and we're glorified and, and childbearing as a category is overwhelmingly used by God in that way. There's other interpretations that people have of like, you know, the Messiah came through the line and, and, and so Mary bore a child and, and he saved his people. So like, there's that too, but I I guess that doesn't automatically jump out at me in the text. I could be totally wrong. Um, but yeah, my, my, my understanding of it would just, would, would to describe it as a general rule that Hmm. childbearing is something that casts you upon the Lord and that sanctifies you and that conforms you more to the image of Christ. And, and that is, our ultimate salvation is to be conformed mm-hmm. to his image. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I think that people underestimate how much is going on in these verses too, because we just get like sort of white hot with emotion when we read them. And I think that there's a, a couple things that are really important. The, I think one is, is that childbearing for women in the ancient world was also one of the most likely things to happen in their life to kill them. That is to not save them. Right. It was one of the greatest risks that they took. And so to be saved through the most dangerous thing that you do has a certain kind of spiritual irony to it. Right. And in some ways that is sanctifying. Like if you think about the verse we talked about in first Peter, where it says, if you, if, if you are like Sarah and you don't go give in to the fear of, and then the the next word isn't the same word phobos in Greek. It's like, it's like a word that's only used a couple of times for like terror or calamity. Like if you don't fear destruction or calamity or the worst thing that could happen to you, your greatest fear, right? And so in that sense for women embracing childbearing in that kind of dangerous context where like up to a third of women died in some cultures in childbirth, right? Um, that was really big. I think the other thing to recognize is just a couple of verses earlier, it says, um, I don't pr- permit a woman to teach or to have authority or assume authority over a man. And in so doing in the context of first Timothy, that at least means that women aren't supposed to be elders in the church, right? As you get into chapter three, it specifically refers to men as elders. And then in chapter five, it also specifically refers to um, elders in exclusively male terms. And so, and in chapter five, it talks about teaching elders and authority elders, right? So you have teaching, have authority. And then in chapter five, you have elders who teach and to elders who have authority. And then all of chapter three is about elders. So I take first Timothy two, not to mean women should never talk in church. But to me, the, the work of an elder is to be done by men. They're to teach and have authority in the public meeting of the local church as the as the primary teacher and authority giver, right? They have to fulfill all the standards of chapter three. 
and they should be utilized in the church and adjudicated in the church, like it says in chapter five. Because of that, and because now we're, this verse is saying only men will be elders, the question is, well, then what happens to women? What is the operation in the church that only they do and how important is it? And the answer is, there is an operation only they can do in the church, make new humans and impart humanity to them, hmm. which is kind of big, you know, and and that is the thing that only they can do. And so what that means is, is that women are compensated for the great labor of having children and imparting humanity to them by men taking a consummate singular responsibility of taking freaking responsibility for the health of the structure and the protection of the community. They're in charge of that in the church. So women are free to focus on the very difficult and singular role that they have in bearing children and in nurturing them and imparting humanity and godliness to them at the youngest age as possible. Because in terms of godliness, they're forming that child's humanity, their morality, their moral conscience, their sense of imagination, their aesthetics. All of that's getting formed in those first three years that women are in, inordinately and disproportionately focused on. Right. And so in that sense, women being saved through childbearing, some, some people will say it like this, they are saved from being second class Christians or second class citizens or saved from being truly wrongly subordinated in the Christian community. But that's directly related to it says if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Right. That like those dynamics of expressed biblical femininity, even within the context of childbearing where possible, is fundamental to how women live out their singular and unique contribution that only they can do as men are called upon to have a singular contribution as elders. And both are enormous responsibilities without which neither the human race nor the Christian church can be healthy as an organic unit moving through generations. Yeah. Yes. And Nick, you said that there was some sort of paradox or irony in that the, in that a lot like th this desire to have children was for a lot of women, most certainly going to result in death, which, which there's, one way there's or another. A, yeah, yeah, in one way or another, there's a, there's, I'm, I'm sure that you were trying to make this point, maybe you weren't, but that there's a connection uh, from that to the cross, and that the like salvation, that this salvific act in some ways is, in this act of dying yeah. brings life, or it brings or sacrifice too. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's very little in human experience as metaphorically appropriate to salvation as a woman giving birth to a child. Yeah, right. Especially in the ancient world where there was so much risk of death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Paul uses the same metaphor. I think it's in Galatians where he's talking about trying to help people come to sanctification to really grow in godliness. I'm and he in says labor. like, I'm in labor, like, you know, I'm in labor, like I'm trying to birth a child. It's like yeah. that being being a pastor. Yeah. So, so pastors, like I'll tell you as an elder in the church and as a pastor, I, man, it feels like half my life is metaphorically being in labor to birth godliness in people. Mm -hmm. And women are literally in labor and laboring after the birth to bring forth godly children. Mm -hmm. And only with those two working together in the local church and in the family of God does that actually produce what God says was his intention all along, which is in Malachi 2, he says to produce godly offspring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Annalise, do you have anything no, to that was add? Or, no. That was really okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's also too, it's like one hermeneutical principle that everyone should have is that you interpret the, the unclear by the clear or the implicit mm -hmm. by the explicit. And so you look at a verse like, we know we're saved but, but by grace through faith alone. And so it's like, okay, mm -hmm. getting the essentials of, of what saves a person 
yeah. frees us up to look at that verse a little more critically. Like it's not salvation yeah. because you had a child. Like, right. Yeah. One of the most Although, important things to interpret that verse is that the verse chapter one, verse one in first Timothy is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our savior and Christ Jesus, our hope. Like the fact that Paul signs his name to this letter, he's saying, this is the same guy who wrote Romans and Colossians and Galatians and all the places that say women are saved exactly the same as men and that delineates the relationship we have between us. So when you read that one verse, if you go, well, see, that just means that women are saved by having babies instead of like, that's idiotic because it's the same apostle Paul who wrote all these letters. Right. And it wouldn't make sense because there's a lot of women who hate Christ who have had babies. I mean, like it, it isn't, isn't just so okay so let's move in i mean nick we basically have i just got the text from nick's assistant aaron who's always i'm gonna put this in the podcast because it'll be funny but she's always telling me that i can't go over the time limit so nick do you want to go into question 11 that we have written down here yeah i mean i think i think that's kind of a salient question like in because people okay, imagine you're trying to persuade somebody who is has kind of bought into a pragmatic, expressive individualist worldview, and you're trying to say, hey, listen, it's not just that femininity is a wrong philosophy rooted in certain critical schools that are bad, right? Femininity or feminism, it, the third wave critical kind we're talking about. If you buy into that worldview, it's going to make you miserable, actually. Yeah. It's against nature. It's actually inhuman. And it structures being a wife, being a mother, being a woman in a certain way that makes it unfulfilling. So like in what way is believing in, in what we call biblical femininity, or we might just say femininity, how does that structure being a wife, mother, or woman differently? Like how does, fem how does feminism structure any one of those? And how does femininity differently structure it so that it's actually enjoyable so that you can find it fulfilling if it's combined with the right kind of faith? Mm -hmm. Well, and this goes back to like, if when, if men and women are inherently designed differently, then the mm -hmm. roles that we take on are going to be more natural to us. Um, which again, a lot of people aren't coming from that assumption that men and women are inherently different. They're mm -hmm. coming from that. We're basically the same. And maybe God tells us to do different things because we don't know why, um, which you, you spoke to earlier, but, yeah. um, I think it's like the difference against working with or swimming upstream versus swimming downstream. And um, you were talking earlier about when there's like women in, in these high CEO roles and they're miserable. And that is an example of swimming upstream. And I would argue fighting against nature. Like, and I was talking to someone recently, like, because they were saying, you know, how do you, how do you demonstrate to someone like, you know, being a wife and mother is an amazing thing and more people should do yeah. it or whatever. And I was like, I don't think you have to prove to women that it's a good thing. Right. It's, it's innately a desire for most, most women. Mm -hmm. You don't have to prove anything. You just have to show them like, you can do this and it's okay. And it is a good thing, but you're appealing to something that is innate and inherent and you're swimming downstream, so to speak. So you look like you're going to say something. I, well, I, I, wrote, gonna, I wrote a couple oh. things down. Okay. I was just going to ask real quickly. Do you think that that's true of our generation? I've wondered, like, is it true that, that like the people of our generation actually want to have the women, sorry, the women of our generation want to have children. Cause I've found that to be what's different from, from these younger generations compared to the older ones. When you talk to like a Gen X or a, a boomer, 
they had some sort of desire to have kids. But if I talk to people our age, and maybe that's just because we're young and stupid, they like actually don't want to, and they think that it's a, like that it's a terrible thing. No, so, I, I agree, and I. I genuinely did not want kids as a teenager. Like I was not a girl who grew up thinking I want to be a wife and a mother one day. Um, so I, I can be sympathetic to that. But when I became a wife and mother, it was like everything in my life clicked and all the pieces <laughs> just fell into place. And it was like, oh, like every I'm a desire, woman, <laughs> all my desires that I, I had previously been trying to find in other things, like they were fulfilled in this role. Like, Women, even if you're, and and I don't know much about the, like the corporate world, but the skills of like wanting to, wanting to take something and make it more beautiful and make it better. Like, right. Okay. You can do that in a corporate setting, but like, how cool is it that I get to do that in my own home? And like, I get to enhance everything around me. Um, the, the desire to, to impart wisdom or whatever, like, okay, you could be, you could be like a trainer trainer at your work or whatever, or you can have children who you're literally shaping their souls. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yes, like there are people who genuinely don't want kids. I have friends who genuinely don't want children. I didn't for a long time, but I realized that all the fundamental desires, like of, of wanting that longing for purpose and, wanting to to do something worthwhile and to take something and make it better than it was before. Like that's all fulfilled in being a wife and mom. Mm-hmm. That sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, I think that we should recognize that a lot of women very much struggle embodying motherhood one, you know, even after they've had children. But I, I think that this is a, there's a question of nature, right? That there are some women who like, it's so like my wife, for example, she was raised by a boomer mom, we're Gen Xers, and she was raised to be a good worker, not a mother, right? And so it just wasn't talked about, but like her mom had children. And so like, and and she has a younger sister who's 10 years younger. So like she was around a baby and like there's something natural that like communicates that if you're just like around children like that. But I think that there's some women who really struggle. And I, I think that like um, there's been IQ inflation over the last 200 years of almost 10 points. And a lot of the repetitive things we do with kids um, won't drive somebody crazy if their IQ is 100 or less, or less. But if it's over about 112, you start getting really dissatisfied with highly repetitive tasks, right? So like if you have a lot of little kids and you're changing a lot of diapers, you're, doing, you're making meals, you're cleaning the kitchen 100 times, yeah. you, like motherhood is full of a lot of highly repetitive tasks. So when you take a woman with an IQ of 120, you educate her on the collegiate level. She learns a couple languages. She reads a lot of literature. And then all of a sudden she has a baby. And she says, I'm going to buy biblical womanhood. I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. Some of those women start going crazy. Because they start doing high, these highly repetitive early childhood tasks and their mind just is not fully engaged. Yeah. And so I do think there's some evolution in, in motherhood where we need to make sure that these women are like having some time with friends, talking to adults, pursuing them to some things other than just taking care of kids, that the men are having conversations with them where we're doing a lot of listening so they can talk to a full-fledged intellectual adult, right? I mean, most guys 
they are hoping their wife will get their sex drive back and they're wanting to touch their wives and their wives are wanting to talk to their husbands. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a tough dynamic because the the guy's got to go home and be like, okay, I might not get to touch her, but I still got to listen to her. And like, to like try to find pleasure in listening to the woman who you were happy to listen to when you were dating, you know? And so there, I think there are these like gritty dynamics, but that's what I think Annalise was getting to when she said, not just like she said just now, there's something really fulfilling about motherhood. But before she was saying there, were, there was something really sanctifying about motherhood and yeah. that is being made holy, being going through the suffering of difficulty to finding the real meaning in things and to habituate, as Thomas Aquinas would say, to habituate the soul to virtue. So by doing what you know is right, your soul begins to habituate to it. And then you begin to feel pleasure in doing the thing you've done that was right. And so like you start taking pleasure in spending that quality time with your kid. When you would have like there, when when you first had the kid, you kind of want to put them bed as quick as you can to watch something on Netflix. Mm. <clears throat> but that's actually wasn't good. Like you're a shallow person. <laughs> like, and so like saying, okay, wait, giving my kid that quality time and nurturing and bringing that humanity out of him is worth not watching any TV today and falling asleep like 20 minutes after I put him to bed. But then when your soul habituates to that, you're actually sanctifying. You're growing in faith. You're growing as a human being. Your life is becoming more meaningful. You're focusing your mind and heart on things that really are valuable inherently. Hmm. And it changes you for the better. So I think I think we got to recognize that like there are some functional difficulties in modern life we need to pay attention to. But there's this interplay between feeling fulfilled and feeling unfulfilled. And the feeling fulfilled are these like glimpses of glory. They're beautiful. But then there's this feeling unfulfilled, which is usually going to mark a place where you're deficient, right? Where sanctification has to happen, where you have to grow. Your perception of what you're doing doesn't match the reality. And that's what we see with a lot of women. Like their perception of how important their role is doesn't match the reality that their role is extremely important and valuable. And so- Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, you're scrolling and I just see post after post of like women trying to convince other women, like, yes, what you're doing matters. Mm-hmm. Keep it up. Yeah. I personally, I don't know if it's because I did work for a while before I had my son. Like, I don't know, but, um, I haven't reached that point in parenting where maybe I just have a low IQ where I'm like really okay well, with repetitive tasks. I, really, I was just no, going to say. It's because you only have one kid. <laughs> no. Gotcha. Yeah. When multiple kids start taking over and you like, you keep doing the repetitive tasks and it's like, and then there's more than you can do well. It starts to have that effect. Like when you have one kid, you still can think straight thoughts. You can get a little bit of sleep. You can, it's like the marrow gets sucked out of you when you've got like more than one, like you're playing zone defense instead of man to man. Okay. I can see that. I I do think. You're also, Annalise, you're also building like a, a social media platform and that's podcasting true. and you're like still doing things mm-hmm. on the side. That, that's what I was going to say to Nick's point is like, you're not, you, you're, you're a mother first, but you're also building a, a brand in certain ways. And you're still doing things that would, would be done in the corporate world. I mean, mm-hmm. that, like that's you're true. doing that too. Yeah. Yeah. And women yeah. can do that. I mean, yeah. we know a bunch of women at high point church who have like business on the side, but they're still, they're still mothering and things like that. It's not like, it's not like you can't do yeah, that. One of the, one of the biggest Christian woman hypocrisies that kind of annoys me, but I'm not supposed to talk about publicly is their attitude towards Proverbs 31. Because like the woman in Proverbs 31 isn't like little miss nurturing. I mean, she's an adult woman. She might be in her sixties or fifties or sixties at this point. Cause it seems like her kids are mostly grown and she's yeah. running her household. She has businesses on the side. She's doing all this stuff. Right. And so on the like, 
super feminine side it's kind of like well i can't live up to that like and then but then the feminists are all like oh you just want me to be a stay-at-home mom with my little babies they'll be like well no you can be like the one in proverbs 31 and like take over the world and respect your husband (laughs) yeah like it's not like the biblical view of womanhood is like staying at home with your little kids and just going on play dates and doing nothing else like christian women in history have like fought industrialized like serial drunkenness and they have like done prison reform and all this stuff while carrying their children around England and America. Like, right. And, it's and not- you can, I was thinking about this too, because <clears throat> you were talking about um, women need to be have, go, going out and spending time with other women and like having conversations and stuff. And I think about like every Sunday night we have like beer and meal fellowship after evening service. And mm-hmm. you can cut that part out if, that's bad. Um, I don't know. It's not bad. <laughs> it is like rich with theological discussion and, you know, or like it's, it, and, and men and women discussing these things. And I think about that of like, I, as a mother throughout the week, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with my son and doing repetitive tasks or whatever, but I have a built-in community to have extremely rich relationships and conversation. And if someone doesn't have that, then like, yes, I can see that right. you would go crazy. But this right. goes back to our earlier point of like, are you, are you in a church where you're deeply known and actually participating in the events that are offered to you? Right. Yeah. I think this yeah. is ha- this happened some in the homeschool community. Christian women who are college educated and really bright who decide to like be a stay at home mom. I think some of the times they, they homeschool because they don't like the offerings at the public schools. But I think sometimes it's kind of like it's the only thing they can do that actually uses their intelligence. And they're just kind of like, I'm going to learn Latin, teach my kids Latin. I'm going to learn biology. I'm going to do all this stuff. And like, they're like, I'm going to read Gorgias by Socrates. And like, and like they get into it partly because it's real stimulating for them. But then they also find themselves as full participants in their kids' educations, which they like, you know? Hmm. And I think that's a great way for, so I've seen Christian women who are highly intelligent and could have become bored with certain repetitive things in parenting, but then they just, they made their home a more interesting place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I also think it's really important to recognize that like some of it's just like the parenting models and stuff. Yeah. Like if your parenting model is so child centered that it's ruining your own sanity right. in your marriage, then that's that there's nothing biblical about that. Right. Like the Bible doesn't say anywhere you have to play with your kids even. Like the whole right. like modern thing where like dads are supposed to play with their kids. Um, my dad never played with me. Almost yeah. no man ever played with their kids in the history of the world. The entire <laughs> history of the entire world. Right. It never happened. Now it's like you're a bad dad if you don't and blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, like this is just like whimmed parenting models that have been foisted upon us like in the last 15 years or whatever. Yeah. And like you can just be like, that's not true. Like women could say to their kids, listen, um, you don't you don't need a mommy right now and I'm not going to be one. Mommy's reading. Please don't interrupt me again. Or you're having we're all having quiet time now for the next 30 yeah. minutes because yeah. we're learning how to be OK with ourselves. And mommy's having it, too. Like you've got to like have a little bit of like, like I I read something recently. It's like, don't let your kids have all the fun. Like make your kids stay at home and you go out and have some fun because there should be benefits to adulthood, not just childhood. And let them, let them wish they could grow up and be adults. Right. So that they could go out and have fun. You know, when your kid thinks that they run the household, they're going to live the rest of their life like that. They're going to be entitled. Yeah. And and even when they get to to be an adult, I mean, I have friends and people my age who have grown up in this like very millennial style parenting where the kid Mm -hmm. is like the God of the household and they like, they can't comprehend why 
the entire world doesn't conform to them after they graduate college. They don't even understand why that's yeah. why, why is everybody not doing what I tell them to do. And I think mm-hmm. it's and I think it's in some ways you have to let your kids explore <laughs> and get hurt and fall down and like and get and back ignore up them. on their own. Yeah, and get like back just, up on their own. Yeah. And I'm not saying like don't like there are certain nurturing things kids really really need from us to feel mm-hmm. safe and secure in our relationships. Mm-hmm. And I'm like all for you give those you give kids like that stability. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, as they say in the psychological studies, but then the little rat goes away from its mom mm-hmm. and explores the box, you know, like you gotta like be like, okay, kid, you get, you just gotta go away. Like yeah. just go and explore and do things and, you know, play with the other kids and so on. And I'm here, yeah. but yeah, because yeah, I, makes- I see, I see. And so when I, when I see what happens then, right, if you don't get this, what happens is woman, a woman goes, okay, I want to be a Christian mom. And then she's, she wants to be the best at everything because she's taken in a secular competitive spirit. She's like, going to be the best mom I can possibly be. So what's the best mom she can possibly be? Well, she looks at secular, feminist, okayed parenting literature, mm-hmm. which says, like, you've got to over-nurture your kid incredibly, right? And so you go, okay, well, I'm going to do that because I'm going to be this best mom yeah. I can because I want to honor God. Right. So I'm going to do it in the secular feminist way that God never told me to do in scripture. Right. And so like you, for the, you do the right, the wrong things for the right reasons, but those things are inhuman, right? They're not good for marriages. They're not good for your own psyche. They're not good for any of that. They're not even good parenting. And then you start feeling angry because your husband hates you or like he's, he's resentful at least because you have no energy left over for him. You feel like you're going crazy and your kid isn't even respectful or nice or like you just want to punch the kid. And you're like, what the frick? Like I'm doing this for God. Like, and then you start getting mad at God. And it's just like, and I've seen this with Christian women. They really struggle. And I'm like, what if we just stopped doing the things we're doing for God in the way the world does them? And what if we actually took God's means, not just his assignments hmm. and like had the faith to do it. And I think people end up a lot happier, you know? Yeah. I, I agree yeah. from observation of being in the online world of like these mass like everyone hops on this parenting philosophy and then it's mm-hmm. like um and it's very the child-centered stuff so we don't get to see the, the yeah, yeah. Right. we don't get to see the results of those things in 20 years until they come and oftentimes they end up being really bad and we realize that we screwed up an entire generation or something yeah so, but but i think we well i i can say like so i'm i'm 45 right or 46 on the holiday and I've been pastoring for 20 years and I have seen the results of the, of the, yeah. of the self-help self-esteem generation. Yeah. Okay. And what it's produced is an untold amount of inordinate pride coupled with inordinate self-hatred. Yeah. And, and I have a hard time imagining a worse result than that. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I feel like you could do almost anything and do better than that, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I'm talking about spiritually and morally speaking, like we've produced a lot of good accountants, a lot of good engineers, a lot of good people who can type at computers and make graphic things and post things online. Like we've, we've produced a lot of proficient human creatures, but like, I mean, I sit down with people and they are too arrogant to hear the truth and they hate themselves to their core. Mm. And I'm just kind of like, okay, man, we blew it. So let's do something totally different, you know? Okay. Helping yeah. children find a good self-regard comes from loving them, not from telling them that the greatest thing ever was. And like, there, there, there's ways to do this. And but a lot of it is taking a lot of pressure off ourselves. In things yeah. so that they have something that <laughs> they've produced and they can feel confident mm-hmm. in that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, gotta, I, gotta, yeah. I have to stop this because I'm getting texts from Aaron, but, uh, <laughs> the, okay. So yeah, as we, as we wrap this thing up, um, you know, I'm sure we could do more. I, I want to do a podcast on parenting in the future. So maybe Annalise, could, we could all hop on and do that. Yeah, one. in 12 years. Uh, we'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's wise. When you're, you have one kid who's eight months old, you can yeah. be a wonderful parent, but yeah, you're going to step in it if you. And I'm also, I'm very like, I, I don't know if this is a bad thing. I think it has pros and cons, but like, I'm not, I'm not someone who reads books about like how to do things right. Like, before birth, I didn't read birth books. Like, I don't care. Like, I don't want to know, but that's how I am with like parenting of like, I don't want to read everyone's philosophy. Like I'm just kind of winging it. So (laughs) trying to do my best, but I I don't have that. Like, Oh, I need to be the best mom I can be. Like, I can't relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's good. Okay. So as we close things out, Annalise, you want to tell people where they can find you and your podcast on your social medias and all that great stuff. Um, and then we can, we can close out. Um, yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at feminine underscore not underscore feminist. You can find me on Spotify. My podcast is Everyday Wife and Twitter, feminine not ist. And I have a website, uh, everydaywife.com if you um, can't listen to my podcast on Apple or Spotify, you can listen to it there. So cool. that's about yeah. it. Yeah. And we'll put all the links to those in the description. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you coming on. And I think this is fun. I think people will really like it. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.